Hi, my name's Harry, and welcome to Passing Through a Vegan Door. This is a podcast about navigating a world filled with animal cruelty. I just want to thank Dan from Animal Rising for taking the time to talk with me, and thank you for listening. You either care about animal welfare just as much as me, or you really like the sound of my voice. I hope you benefit from this podcast as much as I have. Enjoy. Do you remember what the name of my podcast is? Passing through a vegan. Passing through a vegan door podcast. Passing through a vegan door podcast. That was close, that was close. Stop all animal The best thing to do is just get someone to cut down a little bit. What the fuck are we doing to this planet? I'm does anyone have any final thoughts to make? Are you doing you will die? I think that's inspiring for people to be part of it. Thank you so much for doing this. I know I'm sure you're a very busy person at the minute, so I do really appreciate it. No worries. It's it's a pleasure to to meet someone new who's doing this work and yeah, build connections. Amazing. Um so I'll start it off with I'm sure, you know. I know Animal Rising, the name has been everywhere at the minute, but it's more just who you are basically at the start. I just really want to know why you're doing what you're doing, who you are, and why you're not in an office job being a manager of a big corporate finance team and making loads of money and just living a nice, peaceful life. Uh, yeah, all right. <laughs> Good question. Um, so yeah, my name is Dan. I'm co-founder of Animal Rising, which was formerly called Animal Rebellion. Um, why am I not in a big corporate job? <laughs> well, I guess, I mean, like, it would just be absolutely soul-crushing. Uh, it would be the simple one. So when I was younger, I used to do sales jobs and the like. And um, it's just, there's just absolutely no meaning to it whatsoever. For me, what life is fundamentally about is trying to live... Um, in alignment with one's own values and as a true individual, like expressing who we really are. And for me, that led me down to the path of working for animals and the climate Um, because uh, they're the two biggest moral emergencies that we're facing, Um, animals being trillions of land and sea animals being killed every single year who each of them suffer and die. Um, for no good reason and the climate we're basically driving ourselves to destruction very soon unless if we all wake up as a civilization and do something about it so there's nothing more important to be doing at this time so yeah I couldn't just be <laughs> I couldn't be I couldn't do corporate work be soul crushing yeah no I agree I it's nice to hear other people say that. I think sometimes you can um, be so caught up in your day-to-day things when you sit down and talk to someone who, you know, chooses what they believe in rather than, um, I don't know, a comfortable life and a paycheck. Because I, I used to work in a law firm myself, so I, I used to have the nine-to-five office job while I would look out the window of my office building and see all of the climate strikes. And I used to just think, what's the point in me being here making money when they're the ones out on the street doing something about it? Was there a point? I I feel like everyone has a trigger. Everyone has a certain experience that they've gone through or just seen or heard. um, And that's kind of a turning point for them. It's kind of a a light switch of, of seeing things from a different light because I feel like we're all born into a world where animal cruelty is the norm unfortunately so for people who who you know activists who are out there trying to put this message across everyone has a story what was there a point that you remember or no there was so yeah i certainly wasn't uh always uh out campaigning and doing this work um so i how long ago was it had been about eight year, eight or nine years ago um, I got into meditation and I used to go every week to a small little group um, and one day I had just what I would describe as a very powerful meditation experience that raised my own empathy levels um, 
So I remember the next the next day turning on the news and seeing the war in Syria going on. And I, you know what it's like when you're sitting at home and watching this disaster after disaster and you get so desensitized to stuff. Yeah. And it's just, oh, another war will change the channel. Well, this time I didn't. And like, I just really cared about it and it was just, oh my God, there's a war on. That means people are suffering, people are dying and so on and so forth. And it just like, my heart just opened basically to, to what was going on in the world. Soon after the question came to me, uh, why do I eat animals? Is it justified to eat animals? Is it okay? And I just couldn't not actually think about it. Because I recognised that there was others who was going to be harmed in that process, so I read books, I watched videos. Videos was really hard because I watched like factory farming and stuff like that, and it just broke me. Really, I spent about three months depressed. Uh, no, that's wrong. I spent about three weeks depressed um, as I just couldn't kind of comprehend it. And then I made a decision that I was going to work to do something about it. Um, and to try and stop this. And then uh, I've been joyfully fighting the fight ever since. Um, it's just kind of one of those things of when you see what's happening, you can either just be destroyed by it or you can rise up to the challenge and, and get trying to change things. And so, yeah, uh, I've been spending about the last eight years campaigning around predominantly around animal issues, but various other different uh, social causes and yeah that led me over the years into spaces like Sea Shepherd doing anti-whaling campaigns uh, going into factory farms and rescuing animals and uh, yeah over the last few years just doing animal rebellion and animal rising yeah that's great it's um, about the kind of desensitizing thing I think that's so common um especially with kind of mainstream media now. I always think, uh, do you remember when the kind of start of uh, coronavirus and every day on the news, they would announce the kind of death toll for that day. Um, and at the start of it, it was kind of, it was shocking. But after months of just numbers on a screen, it just became, it became nothing. We, it became like a normal thing. And people weren't as concerned about it because, if you if you just get this same information shoved down your throat every day, um, I suppose that's why how we become desensitized. But um, it's interesting that you became. I feel like when when you learn this information, everyone has a different reaction. You know, for me, I became really angry, but you said you became depressed. How, how did you overcome that? Yeah. So first off, was depression. And that was because, you know, you're just seeing all of this just grotesque, brutal treatment of animals that just, you. well, I personally just had no idea ever happened. Like, it was just way beyond the scope of what I thought was humans were even capable of. And the fact that it's happening all the time, everywhere, to so many beings who we all claim to love, uh was was just heartbreaking to me. I think the way to overcome that real that that, that feeling of depression is yeah, I think it comes from a disempowerment. It comes from a fact of this is happening and there's nothing that I can do about it. And you get into this kind of like victim mentality of like you're a victim of the world and all these bad things and I think that the difference comes through the empowerment process of seeing that, oh, I, I actually can make a difference. And for me, that first came through like the personal thing of, well, you know, I can I can stop participating in this industry. I can stop consuming the products and, and live in alignment with my values. And through that, they can influence people and make it change that way. And that was very empowering. Um, over time, you come to see the flaws in that in that viewpoint, and you can only have, actually have a very limited impact. And I came to really discover collective power, the power of social movements, what we can do when we come together strategically um, with love in our 
arts as large groups of people. And that is where I think true empowerment, true empowerment comes is through collective action. And so that really moved me into the space of social movement building. And and you know, over the years, what we've seen is through movements like Extinction Rebellion, um, Animal Rebellion, Animal Rising, that we can really have dramatic impacts on the culture uh, of of this country and around the world um, through taking that collective action. So you can't be depressed when <laughs> when you're doing when you're actually doing something meaningful. About it. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I, I feel like I had a similar thing when when you start to realize that there's so many people out there who think and feel the same things as you it becomes so much easier to not be as angry and not be depressed because you see kind of an end goal and when there's other people who have share that similar goal it becomes more believable that it can be achieved so um i think that's good i'll go on to kind of the work that you've done in a minute i just wanted to ask what did you do with sea shepherd i've i've done some work with Sea Shepherd. How how did you find it? What kind of things did you do? Uh, yeah, so I joined Sea Shepherd in 2016 uh, as part of their anti-whaling Antarctic mission called Operation Nemesis. Uh, the goal was to go and stop um, whaling um, in the Southern Ocean. Honestly, how I found it was the people were absolutely phenomenal who I was on the ships with. It was like one big family. It was there. 36 people out at sea surrounded by beautiful nature you're relying on each other for your own survival and the bonds it creates are like probably nothing i've ever experienced amazing uh as far as activism goes um i don't really view it as activism actually if i'm honest um because we there was the policy on that campaign was to not engage in any direct action so when we were at sea, um, we ended up being tailed by one of their ships. And yeah, we carried on searching for the factory ship for a month whilst being followed and all of our coordinates were being relayed. And the crew was all asking, let's go and do something. Like typical old school sea ship tactics would have been to go and uh, damage the ship that was following us so we can get away and begin the search again. But we didn't. We just carried on searching for a month. And it was like, what are we doing here? And it seemed a bit performative to me. Um, sea Shepherd do amazing work. Uh, they uh, do a lot to protect uh, marine life. But it really felt that the campaign that I was the part of was like their last Antarctic campaign. And the only reason they did it is because they're support base wanted them to but they really they wanted to be going in a different direction uh so it was a good lesson for me really in in uh i mean what i kind of came away from it thinking was that i want to actually be taking meaningful direct action to animals really getting in the way and intervening in in the harm that's being done create a change and not get into that kind of performative ngoe type campaigning that often organizations can slip into yeah that's interesting because I, I i've i've only really been on the other side of sea ship and i've just been a supporter like i i ran a marathon for them i've raised money for them i've done certain things but i've never been on the inside of things and i've just heard stories and and kind of i think there's a big there's a big difference with activism in terms of actual you know change and kind of talking about change but that difference can you you might not be able to see that difference through the media clearly with um things like animal rising and and uh, extinction rebellion you can see footage of actual you know protests and actual change but with sea shepherd it's kind of they've built such kind of a mainstream um following that these kind of campaigns can get a little bit lost in in what the point of it is, you know, is it to is it to look like change is happening, or is change actually happening? Yeah, and I think the the broader NGO kind of model has been built off the fact of selling people with the idea that real change is happening. Yeah, but if we look over the last well, my entire lifetime, I'm 31 now, things have got worse and worse and worse 
whilst you've had big organisations saying, you know, we're making a difference, give us money. Uh, but but things haven't happened. Like, you know, the climate is at the point of catastrophic collapse where we're going to lose everything that we love and billions of animals have been uh, are being tortured in these farms when you've got, you know, large kind of welfareist organisations saying we're making things better for them. But it's not getting worse and worse and worse and the numbers are increasing and increasing. Uh, so, you know, I, I think there's there's that shift that's happening now um, with, with you know, the rise of Extinction Rebellion, um, Just Stop Oil and other organisations where it's kind of a big departure from that old way of doing things and it's saying like like no we're going to actually really set our ambitions very high and go for that change and not give up and go into real confrontation with the corporate class with the um with the political establishment uh because you know the time for them uh dominating and causing so much destruction needs to needs to shift uh so it's like yeah there's there's, there's a real change happened over the last five years where, yeah, we're actually trying to bring about the changes we're, that we want. Something like a, a big movement like Animal Rising, how, how does something like that start you know again i've just been an observer of these things of you know sitting in an office and looking out the window and then suddenly there's thousands of people in the street and i see posts of you know there's a a strike or or there's some sort of activist movement happening this weekend where's day one what happens on day one how does something like that come about i it just blows my mind i think it's amazing that these things can actually happen in real life but i'm just thinking how how does who sends the first email to science, you know, or who comes up with these ideas to, to do these things? Well, the the kind of common narrative that you see in the press is these things just pop up out of nowhere. Yeah. That's never the case. Um, so, an Animal Rebellion, Animal Rising, when we started, there had been a number of years spent researching, asking the question of, of how, how do we bring about uh, large-scale social transformation? So like, I'd been working with the people like Roger Hallam and Gail Bradbrook who set up Extinction Rebellion for a number of years. And we'd been reading the same books and figuring out the kind of same strategies. And so we kind of had a methodology in terms of how to go about creating change. That was based off of Gandhi, Martin Luther King, movements like Oppor, like uh, movement against a dictator in in Serbia and lots of other movements and there's a real expertise on how to bring about change so there was a big immersion in the literature uh, a lot of time spent relationship building with people across different uh the kind of like movement space and kind of getting to know people um for animal rebellion when we started um the april rebellion of xr had just happened um that was real big a big story um and i got put in a room with someone called dora who wanted to build a kind of like animal version of it and we just had a zoom call and was like so and i kind of said like you know if we're going to do it like this is the strategy that we should follow because like this is what what my understanding of how it would work and there was somebody else in that meeting who i can't say who it was but they don't want to be known. But we arranged to have another meeting three days later. And we were just bouncing around the idea, maybe we would do it, maybe we won't. And then he said, can I invite some people to the meeting? Like, yeah, sure you can. And then he invited the heads of 10 organizations, um, like animal organizations. So then it, I was sitting there like, crap, <laughs> we're need a plan. We can't go into a meeting with all these organizations without a plan. Uh, it would be like a waste of time. So just spent a day writing a document where it would just outline the narrative like kind of like messaging that we were going to use the strategies that we were going to use to build like a large mass of people in london within six months uh the organizational structure that we would have and some cultural element uh put that all on a piece of paper 
And within that was the plan to like occupy Smithfield's meat market, Billingsgate fish market, and so on, and lots of other stuff. And then people rocked up to this meeting. Me and Dora presented it. And then all these organizations were like, that's great. And then uh, we went, found ourselves a core team. We put the plan out as far as we could, found 10 people who were up for it. And we had this big meeting with 10 people where we spent a day going through the plan. And at the end of that meeting, it was like, right, if we're going to do this, we all need to quit our jobs and go full time. And then who was going to do that? And then everyone in the room said, yeah, we're going to go full time. And, and then we had our leadership team and someone gave us a hundred grand, which definitely helps things move along. Uh, and then, you know, from there, it was just build, build, build got disrupted by covid for a little while and then and then we got back on it kind of we really got our act together again in like april 2022 and yeah we've been really growing fast since then i'd say well that's amazing that someone would offer that kind of money to allow to believe in the movement so much that wow that's that's crazy. That's really cool. Yeah, I think COVID stopped a lot of things. I remember uh, kind of those kind of movements and, and uh, Greta obviously had a big following at the time and it was just getting bigger and bigger. And then suddenly the, the thing that was making the biggest uh, sound, you know, all these protests and marches suddenly couldn't happen. And I think there's only so much um, you can do over zoom and things like that um you know social media movements I, i've got a question how how many in terms of the people that you're meeting along the way who you know see your movement and think yeah this is really cool i want to get involved how many of those people are vegan and how many people are vegetarian and how many people don't really care and eat meat is there a range of people or is everyone as dedicated as as you yeah, so predominantly people within Animal Rising are vegan, um, but we don't uh, we 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 don't restrict ourselves. So we we don't have any we, we don't have any rules to say you have to be a vegan to be a part of us or anything like that. We welcome everyone um, who cares about animals to come and participate. Uh, we do have we've had plenty of non-vegan people come and take action with us in the past, and often that comes about through our relationships and our links with other other movements and other organizations so like having very strong relationships with people in extinction rebellion and just stop oil a lot of those people are vegan vegetarian but not all of them are but they because we have this very system focused message that's about transitioning the food system uh building a, a safer more secure more sovereign food system that's you know, necessarily plant-based from the climate side and from the animal side as well. It's people feel less attacked by the idea. It's not like they individually are the problem. It's like we've got this bigger systemic issue and we have a vision of a future that we can all collectively move towards. And a lot of people can find that quite attractive, um, even if they're not necessarily practicing it themselves. So, yeah, a lot we've had loads of people get arrested with us like you know people blockading mcdonald's distribution centers who aren't vegan um and you know standing in front of that banner of the plant-based future uh but on the whole you know we are we are a movement for animals and for this plant-based transition so so predominantly yeah our membership is is vegan that's good. It's interesting the the kind of people who who want to get involved because some people really believe in the kind of practice and what you preach, kind of thing. But I suppose if someone is still that dedicated to the movement, I suppose that 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 is also going to help the movement um, rather than them changing as well. So um, yeah, that's interesting. How long have you been vegan? Uh, about well, it's about. 2014 so what's that it's like nine years i guess has there ever been well how did you how did you find going vegan were you a big meat eater um before that or was it an easy transition for you uh i was the first vegan i ever knew (laughs) 
So uh, it was a bit challenging. Uh, I had to read lots of stuff and really learn what to eat. I remember I actually did like a phase transition. So like I went vegetarian for a few months. Uh, and like first I dropped chicken and then I dropped beef and then I dropped uh, fish and then, you know, one by one, then dairy and then eggs. Actually, I thought I only needed to be a vegetarian in order to act in alignment with my values as an animal lover. And then just as I was getting there, someone said to me, do you know what happens in the dairy and the egg industry? <laughs> and I was like, oh, don't tell me that. But I had the time. I was just relying on eating omelets. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that was how I was getting through it. Um, and then I just, you know, I was like, what the hell am I going to eat? Uh, but of course, like, you know, that was that was my experience nine years ago when there's no one around to show you the ropes. Uh, nowadays, it's very easy. And it's also very easy once you know literally all you need to eat is a grain, some pulses, and colourful vegetables with some nuts and seeds, and that sorts you right out nutritionally speaking. Um, I didn't know that at the time. So I think I think it's easy for people these days, but it was a little bit challenging for me. Yeah, but I, I applaud people who went vegan. Or if you meet someone and they've been vegan for 20 years, and I was just like, how did you... That's that's crazy because I've I've only been vegan for kind of two years, but you know if you think about how much has changed in society just since you've went vegan, you know the amount of vegan restaurants that there are. Um, I'm from uh, Manchester, and if you just go on Happy Cow now, there's a vegan restaurant or cafe on every single corner. Um, there's so many products now. There's entire aisles of vegan and vegetarian things in every supermarket that you go in. I've, I've been in the Netherlands for a few months now and it's not as, um, I was going to say it's not as good as the UK in terms of availability, but no, it's, it's still as, it, it's, it's becoming so much easier, the amount of products that are available. The only thing that I found here is that uh, terminology is a little bit different. Like the, everything says uh, Vega, V-E-G-A, uh, whether and it's difficult to determine what that is, and but Vega is Dutch for vegetarian, but some things can be vegan. Um, so you'll go into a restaurant and ask, you know, can I have something vegan? And they'll say, yeah, this is vegetarian, and you just kind of it, it's still a little bit behind, but it's 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 doing really well. But yeah, those kind of things are really good to transition, I think, because if you can get a burger that looks exactly the same as a beef burger and tastes just as good, it's really easy to, and appealing to people to change. And then you realize that, you know, you don't actually need these kind of replacements because there's so much more food that's just as good and even better for you. And, um, you know, the people who ask, you know, what do you eat? If you just think, if you are a meat eater, there's only, there's only four or five animals that we breed and eat when there's hundreds, you know, thousands of vegetables that you can eat from. There's so much more choice, but I suppose if you grow up just on that kind of meat and potatoes and veg diet, anything else is just alien. Um, my other question about animal rising is, is do you have a goal with it? Do you have, how far in the future do you see uh, in terms of planning and, and your hopes for it? Well, I think we need to really ground this conversation in the fact that we are in the midst of the climate and ecological crisis. And I think that most people haven't really emotionally come to terms with how bad it actually is going to be. Um, you know, we're talking about, uh, you know, UN statistics saying that we're going to have billions of refugees by 2050, that up, to, up to 3 billion refugees by 2050. That is a number of people on the move that is like, you can't even comprehend. That's And when you have that movement of people, then you kind of look at the kind of averages in those situations, like a very, very large proportion of those people will die. But also you're going to be having uh, 
like civilization isn't going to be able to handle like that's one of like the ma- big major stresses on on civilizations is when you have mass migration like when you've got just millions of people desperately trying to get get somewhere to live like that that's when you start getting civilizational collapse take on top of that the fact we're going to be having food shortages and mass starvation which we're already having around the world at the moment you've got people in madagascar going through food shortages and eating shoe leather just to kind of get by um and we're we're, you know we're seeing the complete collapse of our where we're looking at the chance of multi-bread basket failure which is where major food producing regions in the world uh will collapse um simultaneously leading to just global mass starvation and collapse of the food system within our lifetimes most likely uh it's kind of the idea of long-term planning seems a bit odd in that respect because what we need is major structural transformation now and what we know is that the key solution um to these issues not the only solution but the the, the, the central solution is the transition of our food system because by doing that we can free up uh 76% of global farmland and return that land to nature by stopping bottom trawling the oceans we can free up the oceans to restore and recover and through with like the forests and the peatlands and the oceans they can act as major carbon sinks to draw down significant carbon from the atmosphere and and buy us crucial time to get for fossil fuels and all the rest of it so there's a way out and so but it needs to happen like yesterday it needs to happen last week 10 years ago it needed to start happening um so we're in this stage with the climate crisis where you know we're pushing towards just it just needs to happen as soon as so it's one of those things of it i don't think it's a case of long-term planning it's a case of all of us who care to be getting out and doing whatever it is that we can humanly do to bring about this change like now but you know it's like Otherwise, it's just going to be absolutely devastating what we're going to experience. So what we're focused on within Animal Rising is building a culture of civil resistance and movement building so people who are willing to engage in nonviolent direct action, to break the law, to get over the fear barrier in the fact that the state will try and scare us off um, by arresting us and, and all the rest of it that they do. And the the projects that we're involved in, along with other kind of groups within this this scene, is to build a mass resistance of people to say like, no, we're not having it anymore, and we need change. And as part of that change, it will be freeing billions of animals as well from from what's happening in these places. Uh, so 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 that's kind of what we're doing is just as quickly as we can, getting people out on the streets, forming connections with other movements, and doing what needs to be done. How how do you convince the people who live in small towns and have lived there for their whole lives and they go to the same shop every week and they go to the same pub every week and nothing, everything they know hasn't been affected. So the, the, the shop is still there, the pub is still there, the food, the meat is still available at the shops and they can't see those problems and they can't, or maybe don't want to accept what you're saying. How how do you convince those people? Uh, so it's a, I, it's not about individual persuasion. I think this is the 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 paradigm that the animal rights and vegan movements have been in for a long time. That it's about we need to convince people one by one to change, and that's kind of how how the moral awakening happen and will come into better relationship with animals. But that's not how social change works. Social change works through uh, collectives shifting, and and mass psychology operates very differently to individual psychology. Individuals are very slow to change, but groups are very fast to change. And it's a bit paradoxical to kind of view it like that. But I mean, I'll give you kind of maybe a couple of examples and kind of what I mean. So uh, the Sentience Institute. Uh, which are kind of uh, animal rights research organization 
uh, they went and asked people, they did this big survey and were asking how many people were in favor of ending all sorts houses. And I, I think it was a while ago that I read this, so I can't remember, but it was astronomic, astronomically high, the amount of people who were saying, yeah, I'd be, I'd, I could get behind that. And so it was over 50% of people were saying like, yeah, get behind ending all sorts houses. And, and the reason why people said yes is because it was that collective thing. It's about society-wide shit. People can see, oh yeah, that thing needs to happen. So yeah, I believe it should happen. But no one's going to want to make that change individually, or a very small percentage of people are, mm. because you know you're just one person out of out of millions, and it's like, what what difference can you make? Um, there was another study by Pax Fauna, um, who kind of did like narrative research, and they said they were asking people, like, what they were kind of going through all of the, the responses, you know, why, like, you know, they're, all, they're talking about animals and about changing lifestyles and stuff. And what they found is through asking people these questions, they'd get through defense after defense. So, oh, you know, I can't because this reason, or I don't want to because of that reason. Um, and what they'd eventually get down to is the core reason people wouldn't want to do it is because it was a kind of like, what's the point? It was, they called it a futility argument it's like what's the point me changing nothing's going to change everything's going to stay the same and it's that disempowerment aspect and and then i went and also like the other example is i went around and spoke to my like friends and family a few years ago and said to them like if there was a referendum to, to transition off of this stuff to end animal farming and we'd all be going vegan collectively could you vote against and they all said, like, probably no, I couldn't vote against it. I'd have to vote in favor of it because I know it's the right thing. None of these people are vegan. So it's that collective shift that we need. It's like we're all in this together. And people can get behind that whether or not they're practicing it. Um, so that's what we need. Is we need people to see that that's a possibility. And the way that we create that possibility is through creating mass movements that demand it and a, a vanguard of people that are ready and willing to take the risks and take the sacrifice to force that conversation in society and create that social reflection. And that's what we've done, for example, with the Grand National. We've created a national conversation that's led to millions of people reassessing whether it is that they agree with horse racing for the first time in their lives. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. I've never really thought about that. For me personally, I always think I'm doing good if i can talk to someone one-on-one -on -one and you know make them maybe question whether their dietary choices is the best thing to do and and by convincing someone to you know stop eating meat i feel like you know i've i've done my bit but i suppose to do something even bigger than that would be obviously to convince a whole lot of people in a short space of time so that and that's exactly what you're doing. And I think that's really cool. In terms of uh, going on from what you're saying about the Grand National, I've, I've seen so many interviews of uh, kind of an upper class news presenter, you know, interviewing someone who was at the track and they start off by saying, you know, so I heard you've, you know, disrupted a national treasure, an amazing sport that we all believe in. You know, why would you do such a stupid thing? And I'm the thing that worries me is I'm obviously biased because I already believe in it and I have kind of the same moral agenda as as the people who are jumping in front of the tracks. But the thing that I'm worried about is the people who are watching that, who are they going to associate more with i think people maybe aren't going to listen to what the individuals are saying whether it's the person who jumped in front of the tracks or the person who's having a go at them for doing that who are they going to see themselves in more are they going to see themselves more in the person that is wearing a suit and they see on the news every night so they associate more with them and they eat meat themselves rather than kind of a young person who is is ruining something that they put a bet on last night. You know, that's something that I am worried about. How do you, what do you think about that? I think that 
different people will respond in different ways. So when when you have an event like this, like at the Grand National, what we're strategically doing is dramatizing is it, dramatizing the injustice that's going on and creating that emotional engagement, which creates all kinds of different responses. You're going to get some people who are really against you, and they're just going to get more entrenched and become more against you. And often those are going to be the loudest voices as well. So in in the culture, you're going to get like the elevation of these really antagonistic people anti you and think what you've done is awful. So you can hear a lot of those voices. And then you get a load of voices in the culture that are very much in favor of you. And like, this is great. It's excellent. And often the battle is played out in the public sphere amongst those. But then you also have all of these people in the middle that are kind of like, you know, I would put the vast majority of the British public, probably like 95% of people, probably somewhere in the middle on horse racing. Because like, who's... Not many people have really sat around and thought about horse racing. It's like, you don't have... There are many hardcore horse race enthusiasts. And there aren't many, like, hardcore vegans around. Um, Like, someone like my mum, who, you know, as a family, we always went on the Grand National. We used to. Like, you know, dad would be like, I'm going to go to the bookies. What horse do you want to bet on? And we'd all choose a horse. And then you'd go off and put a quid on each, each horse. And when I told her that I was going to go and do the Grand National, my mum was like, mm, horse racing isn't that bad, is it, Dan? Like, maybe you shouldn't, like, you know, just don't do it. But then we go, we create that injustice, that we create that drama and highlight the injustice. Because what happens is someone's sitting at home, they're watching the Grand National, and then suddenly they see 100-odd people throwing themselves at the fences, trying to stop the race, it's dramatic, and it's like, oh my god, why are they doing that? That's odd. And then on the first hurdle, when that race runs ahead, a horse dies. And for the first time, people see it because of what we've done. They see that that horse has died, and their attention and their their hearts can open to that. So, like my mum, like a few days later, I'm on the phone to her, and she say, "Well done for what you did." And I say, "Well, what do you mean? You told me not to do it. That horse racing is a good thing before." And she said, well, the thing is, Dan, is I've never thought about it before. I've lived my whole life, and I've never thought about whether it's right or not. And now you've done what you did, I've thought about it, and I realise it's wrong. And we're hearing, like, those stories are happening all over the place. Like, uh, a friend of mine uh, is in the army, and he's got a load of army mates. And all his army mates were sitting around watching the Grand National. And then they went and... And then we, we went and did our thing. And what was told to him was that the whole mood in the room shifted. And suddenly they're all talking about whether it's right or not. And they're all realizing that it's probably not a good thing. And they shouldn't be supporting it, watching it, or putting the bets on. These are army lads. So it's like it creates that emotional engagement. And it's because of that sacrifice element that we're willing to put ourselves on the line like that. That creates a kind of emotional outpouring. It's because of the disruption that shifts and makes people focus on the issue. And and it's because we're right. Like, if we were wrong, then probably wouldn't work. But because we're so clearly morally right, when people just stop and think about it and just look at those animals, then that creates the shift. And we've seen opinion piece after opinion piece in the newspapers, including in the Daily Mail, of people saying, you know, like, we need to reassess this. There was a guy in The Independent published an opinion piece saying, I've loved horse racing all my life, and now I realise it's wrong. And that's actually what we're seeing in the culture. Like, it's it's really worked. That's that's so good. Um, yeah, you, you must be really proud that that's the... I mean, I say really proud that I know that um, it's still upsetting that the, the horse still died, but in terms of the kind of um, public impact that you've made, that's something definitely to be proud of. It's interesting about your mum because I, I always think about uh, my mum because um, my granddad, so her dad, basically lived in the Buckies and was there every day and it, it was his like happy place. And 
my mum would know that that would make him so happy. And I think she, she's probably in the general public of not really thought about it. It's just something, oh, it's something my dad does. But now that he's not here anymore, I think she would always associate that with him. So if someone said, you know, we're going to get rid of it, it, that would upset her. And she is very family based. So if she doesn't really think about the horses, she's always going to pick something that would, would make her dad happy. And I think if people have those traditions, it might tradition, I think is, is, is a hard thing to get around even when someone's screaming at you in the face and saying, you know, this is clearly not right. You know, it's not right, but if it doesn't affect you individually, are you always going to choose what you've always known and what is, is known to your family and things like that? Yeah, no, no. And I think, and I think that kind of, it shows the importance of, of other elements of this. I mean, firstly, like, um, like, for, like, you don't, like, not everyone has to be support the change, first of all. So there's always going to be a cohort of people that are against progress. You see that across every issue, right? Whether it's gay rights or whatever it might be. Um, there's, but there's the people who are, against it or are struggling with the idea or have blockers against it it's also it's how you relate to them and so for us we're like a very principled non-violent movement so we don't engage in any forms of physical violence but also it means that we engage empathetically and compassionately with people so we're not into like blaming and shaming of people and saying you know you're wrong for doing this it's saying okay you're feeling like that I'm going to listen to you. I'm going to empathize with you. I'm going to seek to understand where you're coming from and, and create a space of dialogue where we can actually have real open and honest conversations where we listen to people and they listen back to us. And, and it's through that process of the disruption followed up with that genuine, meaningful dialogue that that creates the space for people to feel safe enough to reflect and to change. And, you know, what often people do, particularly in the, like, animal movement, is they get very, like, angry. Like you said, there's a lot of angry vegans around. And I've had my angry vegan stage as well. I didn't mention it, but I did have my angry vegan stage. Um, But it doesn't work. What works is to understand where people are coming from and to connect as human beings um, and to build relationship. And then for that, it leads people to change. So we're doing that work as well within Animal Rising um, with general public, but also like we have a project of people going around the country talking to animal farmers um, and building relationship and understanding what it's like to be a farmer and communicating to them why it is that we do what we do and so you can build bridges across the divide and things like that. So it's it's a whole process. It's not just like you disrupt, but you know, it's a very it needs to be a very like mature response to to this social conflict because essentially we're in the work of conflict resolution so it's kind of trying to put that frame things yeah i think that's really good i watched um i think i watched you in an interview or, or it might have been a podcast and you were saying that how how much respect that you have for farmers and that they work you know 70 hour weeks and you know, every day of the year, it, it's not about kind of alienating them because obviously if you do that and you're kind of against animal farming and then, you know, someone listens to that and thinks, well, my dad is has done this his entire life, so you must hate my dad, so why would I want to listen to you? So it's good to kind of be empathetic towards, towards you know, their way of life as, as well and help them see uh that there are other possibilities and and help you transition and things which um which i think is definitely good um i don't want to keep you too long so i just wanted to ask you one last thing if if someone um read about what you've done in terms of the the movements that you're making and the, the things at the grand national and someone read it and thought well that's quite interesting you know i've not really thought about that before or maybe someone who is against what you've done what would advice would you give them to do next you know where where do they go from here if they've seen what you've done and thought you know what what can i do now about that yeah so to anyone listening and to you as well harry like i'd invite people to come and join 
in Animal Rising. So we very easy to get involved. You can come on our website, animalrising.org, and there's a form on there. You can sign up to express interest in coming along and taking action. And we train people up, so we do non-violence trainings um, and connect you up with people in your local area, build community, and go and take action together. Um, we need as many people as possible to really be joining and stepping up. We've got a whole summer of actions and campaigns planned to really create a national conversation around our broken relationship to animals and the natural world. And this movement's just going to keep growing and growing. Um, and we'll be doing stuff ranging from, you know, disrupting racing events to going into farms and rescuing animals and going and handing ourselves into the police to go and face trial by juries to say, like, is what we did really bad thing? Rescue this this animal. I'd invite you to join in an open rescue if you want to, Harry, um, because this this is what it's going to take, is, is people taking this kind of sacrificial action to dramatize the issue and to create this moral, moral reflection in society. Um, so, yeah, that's what I'd say for people to do next. Yeah, that's great. I'm I'm in the Netherlands until July. I'm working uh, in seal rescue, but then I'll be back home in uh, July from them. But yeah, thank you so much for your time. And I think I've learned a lot just from that. So It's a pleasure, Harry. It's nice to meet you. And yeah, let's talk after July. Come get involved. Amazing. All right, excellent. Okay. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.